Chapter 27, Part 1 Sometime in the afternoon I raised my head, and looking round, and seeing the western sun gliding the sign of its decline on the wall, I asked, What am I to do? But the answer my mind gave, Leave Thornfield at once, was so prompt, so dread, that I stopped my ears. I said I could not bear such words now. That I am not Edward Rochester's bride is the least part of my woe, I alleged. That I have wakened out of my most glorious dreams and found them all void and vain is a horror I could bear and master. But that I must leave him decidedly, instantly, entirely, is intolerable. I cannot do it. But then a voice within me averred that I could do it and foretold that I should do it. I wrestled with my own resolution. I wanted to be weak that I might avoid the awful passage of further suffering I saw laid out for me, and conscience, turned tyrant, held passion by the throat, told her, tauntingly, she had yet but dipped her dainty foot in the slough, and swore that with that arm of iron he would thrust her down to unsounded depths of agony. Let me be torn away, then I cried, let another help me. No, you shall tear yourself away. None shall help you. You shall yourself pluck out your right eye. Yourself cut off your right hand. Your heart shall be the victim, and you the priest to transfix it. I rose up suddenly, terror-struck at the solitude which so ruthless a judge haunted, at the silence which so awful a voice filled. My head swam as I stood erect. I perceived that I was sickening from excitement and inanition. Neither meat nor drink had passed my lips that day, for I had taken no breakfast. And with a strange pang, I now reflected that, long as I had been shut up here, no message had been sent to ask how I was, or to invite me to come down. Not even little Adele had tapped at the door. Not even Mrs. Fairfax had sought me. "'Friends always forget those whom fortune forsakes,' I murmured, "'as I undrew the bolt and passed out. "'I stumbled over an obstacle. "'My head was still dizzy, my sight was dim, and my limbs were feeble. "'I could not soon recover myself. "'I fell, but not onto the ground. "'An outstretched arm caught me. "'I looked up. "'I was supported by Mr. Rochester, "'who sat in a chair across my chamber threshold.' "'You come out at last,' he said. "'Well, I have been waiting for you long, and listening. "'Yet not one movement have I heard, nor one sob. Five minutes more of that death-like hush, "'and I should have forced the lock like a burglar. "'So you shun me. "'You shut yourself up and grieve alone. "'I would rather you would come and upbraid in me with vehemence. "'You were passionate. "'I expected a scene of some kind. "'I was prepared for the hot rain of tears.' "'only I wanted them to be shut on my breast. "'Now a senseless floor has received them, "'or your drenched handkerchief. "'But I err. "'You have not wept at all. "'I see a white cheek and a faded eye, "'but no trace of tears. "'I suppose, then, your heart has been weeping blood. "'Well, Jane, not a word of reproach? "'Nothing bitter, nothing poignant, "'nothing to cut a feeling or sting a passion.' You sit quietly where I have placed you and regard me with a weary, passive look. Jane, I never meant to wound you thus. 
if the man, who had but one little ewe lamb, that was dear to him as a daughter, that ate of his bread and drank of his cup, and lay in his bosom, had by some mistake slaughtered it at the shambles, he would not have rued his bloody blunder more than I now rue mine. Will you ever forgive me? Reader, I forgave him at the moment and on the spot. There was such deep remorse in his eye, such true pity in his tone, such manly energy in his manner, and besides, there was such unchanged love in his whole look and mien. I forgave him all, yet not in words, not outwardly, only at my heart's core. "'You know I am a scoundrel, Jane,' ere long he inquired wistfully, wondering, I suppose, at my continued silence and tameness, the result rather of weakness than of will. "'Yes, sir.' "'Then tell me so, roundly and sharply. Don't spare me.' "'I cannot. I am tired and sick. I want some water.' He heaved a sort of shuddering sigh, and taking me in his arms, carried me downstairs. At first I did not know to what room he had borne me. All was cloudy to my glazed sight. Presently I felt the reviving warmth of a fire, for summer as it was, I had become icy cold in my chamber. He put wine to my lips. I tasted it and revived. Then I ate something he offered me, and was soon myself. I was in the library, sitting in his chair. He was quite near. If I could go out of life now, without too sharp a pang, it would be well for me, I thought. Then I should not have to make the effort of cracking my heartstrings and rending them from among Mr. Rochester's. I must leave him, it appears. I do not want to leave him. I cannot leave him. How are you now, Jane? Much better, sir. I shall be well soon. Taste the wine again, Jane. I obeyed him. Then he put the glass on the table, stood before me, and looked at me attentively. Suddenly he turned away. Within an articulate exclamation, full of passionate emotion of some kind, he walked fast through the room and came back. He stooped towards me as if to kiss me. But I remembered caresses were now forbidden. I turned my face away and put his aside. "'What? How is this?' he exclaimed hastily. "'Oh, I know.' "'You won't kiss the husband of Bertha Mason. "'You consider my arms filled and my embraces appropriated. "'At any rate, there is neither room nor claim for me, sir. "'Why, Jane? "'I will spare you the trouble of much talking. "'I will answer for you, because I have a wife already,' you would reply. "'I guess rightly?' "'Yes. "'If you think so, you must have a strange opinion of me. "'You must regard me as a plodding profligate,' a base and low rake who has been simulating disinterested love in order to draw you into a snare deliberately laid and strip you of honor and rob you of self-respect. What do you say to that? I see you can say nothing in the first place. You are faint still and have enough to do to draw your breath. In the second place, you cannot yet accustom yourself to accuse and revile me. And besides, the floodgates of tears are opened and they would rush out if you spoke much, and you have no desire to expostulate, to upbraid, to make a scene. You are thinking how to act. Talking, you consider, is of no use. I know you. I am on my guard. Sir, I do not wish to act against you, I said, 
and my unsteady voice warned me to curtail my sentence. Not in your sense of the word, but in mine you are scheming to destroy me. You have as good as said that I am a married man. As a married man, you will shun me. Just now you have refused to kiss me. You intend to make yourself a complete stranger to me, to live under this roof only as Adele's governess. If ever I say a friendly word to you, if ever a friendly feeling inclines you again to me, you will say, that man had nearly made me his mistress. I must be ice and rock to him. An ice and rock you will accordingly become. I cleared and steadied my voice to reply. All is changed about me, sir. I must change too, there is no doubt of that. And to avoid fluctuations of feeling and continual combats with recollections and associations, there is only one way. Adele must have a new governess, sir. Oh, Adele will go to school. I have settled that already. Nor do I mean to torment you with the hideous associations and recollections of Thornfield Hall, this accursed place, this insolent vault offering the ghastliness of living death to the light of the open sky. This narrow stone hell, with its one real fiend, worse than a legion of such as we imagine. Jane, you shall not stay here, nor will I. I was wrong ever to bring you to Thornfield Hall, knowing as I did how it was haunted. I charged them to conceal from you, before I ever saw you, all knowledge of the curse of the place. Merely because I feared Adele never would have a governess to stay if she knew with what inmate she was housed, and my plans would not permit me to remove the maniac elsewhere, though I possess an old house, Ferndean Manor, even more retired and hidden than this, where I could have lodged her safely enough, had not a scruple about the unhealthiness of the situation in the heart of a wood made my conscience recoil from the arrangement. Probably those damp walls would soon have eased me of her charge, but to each villain his own vice— and mine is not a tendency to indirect assassination, even of what I most hate. Concealing the madwoman's neighborhood from you, however, was something like covering a child with a cloak and laying it down near a upas tree. That demon's vicinage is poisoned, and always was. But I'll shut up, Thornfield Hall. I'll nail up the front door and board the lower windows. I'll give Mrs. Poole two hundred a year to live here with my wife— as you term that fearful hag. Grace will do much for money, and she will have her son, the keeper at Grimsby Retreat, to bear her company and be at hand to give her aid in the paroxysms when my wife is prompted by her familiar to burn people in their beds at night, to stab them, to bite their flesh from their bones, and so on. Sir, I interrupted him, you are inexorable for that unfortunate lady. You speak of her with hate, with vindictive antipathy. It is cruel. She cannot help being mad. Jane, my little darling, so I will call you, for so you are. You don't know what you are talking about. You misjudge me again. It is not because she is mad I hate her. If you were mad, do you think I should hate you? I do indeed, sir. Then you are mistaken, and you know nothing about me, and nothing about the sort of love of which I am capable. Every atom of your flesh is as dear to me as my own. In pain and sickness, it would still be dear. Your mind is my treasure, and if it were broken, 
it would be my treasure still. If you raved, my arms should confine you, and not a straight waistcoat. Your grasp, even in fury, would have a charm for me. If you flew at me as wildly as that woman did this morning, I should receive you in an embrace, at least as fond as it would be restrictive. I should not shrink from you with disgust as I did from her. In your quiet moments you should have no watcher and no nurse but me, and I could hang over you with untiring tenderness, though you gave me no smile in return, and never weary of gazing into your eyes, though they had no longer a ray of recognition for me. But why do I follow that train of ideas? I was talking of removing you from Thornfield. All you know is prepared for prompt departure. Tomorrow you shall go. I only ask you to endure one more night under this roof, Jane, and then farewell to its miseries and terrors forever. I have a place to repair to, which will be a secure sanctuary from hateful reminiscences, from unwelcome intrusion, even from falsehood and slander. And take Adele with you, sir, I interrupted. She will be a companion for you. What do you mean, Jane? I told you I would send Adele to school. And what do I want with a child for a companion, and not my own child, a French dancer's bastard? Why do you importune me about her? I say, why do you assign Adele to me for a companion? You spoke of a retirement, sir, and retirement and solitude are dull, too dull for you. Solitude, solitude, he reiterated with irritation. I see I must come to an explanation. I don't know what sphinx-like expression is forming in your countenance. You are to share my solitude. Do you understand? I shook my head. It required a degree of courage, excited as he was becoming even to risk that mute sign of dissent. He had been walking fast about the room, and he stopped, as if suddenly rooted to one spot. He looked at me long and hard. I turned my eyes from him, fixed them on the fire, and tried to assume and maintain a quiet, collected aspect. "'Now for the hitch in Jane's character,' he said at last, speaking more calmly than from his look I had expected him to speak." The reel of silk has run smoothly enough so far, but I always knew there would come a knot and a puzzle. Here it is. Now for vexation and exasperation and endless trouble. By God, I long to exert a fraction of Samson's strength and break the entanglement like toe. He recommenced his walk, but soon again stopped, and this time just before me. Jane, will you hear reason? He stooped and approached his lips to my ear. Because if you won't, I'll try violence. His voice was hoarse. His look, that of a man who is just about to burst an insufferable bond and plunge headlong into wild license. I saw that in another moment, and with one impetus of frenzy more, I should be able to do nothing with him. The present, the passing second of time, was all I had in which to control and restrain him, a movement of repulsion, flight, fear, would have sealed my doom and his. But I was not afraid, not in the least. I felt an inward power, a sense of influence which supported me. The crisis was perilous, but not without its charm, such as the Indian, perhaps, feels when he slips over the rapid in his canoe. 
I took hold of his clenched hand, loosened the contorted fingers, and said to him soothingly, "'Sit down. I'll talk to you as long as you like, and hear all you have to say, whether reasonable or unreasonable.' He sat down, but he did not get leave to speak directly. I had been struggling with tears for some time. I had taken great pains to repress them, because I knew he would not like to see me weep. Now, however, I considered it well to let them flow as freely and as long as they liked. If the flood annoyed him, so much the better. So I gave way and cried heartily. Soon I heard him earnestly entreating me to be composed. I said I could not while he was in such a passion. But I am not angry, Jane. I only love you too well, and you had steeled your little pale face with such a resolute frozen look. I could not endure it. Hush now, and wipe your eyes. His softened voice announced that he was now subdued, so I, in my turn, became calm. Now he made an effort to rest his head on my shoulder, but I would not permit it. Then he would draw me to him. No. Jane, Jane, he said, in such an accent of bitter sadness, it thrilled along every nerve I had. You don't love me, then. It was only my station and the rank of my wife that you valued. Now that you think me disqualified to become your husband, you recoil from my touch as if I were some toad or ape. These words cut me. Yet what could I do or I say? I ought probably to have done or said something. But I was so tortured by a sense of remorse at thus hurting his feelings, I could not control the wish to drop balm where I had wounded "'I do love you,' I said, "'more than ever. "'But I must not show or indulge the feeling, "'and this is the last time I must express it.' "'The last time, Jane? What? "'Do you think you can live with me and see me daily, "'and yet, if you still love me, be always cold and distant?' "'No, sir, that I am certain I could not, "'and therefore I see there is but one way, "'that you will be furious if I mention it.' Oh, mention it. If I storm, you have the art of weeping. Mr. Rochester, I must leave you. For how long, Jane? For a few minutes, while you smooth your hair, which is somewhat disheveled, and bathe your face, which looks feverish. I must leave Adele and Thornfield. I must part with you for my whole life. I must begin a new existence among strange faces and strange scenes. Of course. I told you you should. I pass over the madness about parting from me. You mean you must become a part of me. As to the new existence, it is all right. You shall yet be my wife. I am not married. You shall be Mrs. Rochester, both virtually and nominally. I shall keep only to you so long as you and I live. You shall go to a place I have in the south of France, a whitewashed villa on the shores of the Mediterranean, there you shall live a happy and guarded and most innocent life. Never fear that I wish to lure you into error, to make you my mistress. Why did you shake your head? Jane, you must be reasonable, or in truth I shall again become frantic. His voice and hand quivered, his large nostrils dilated, his eye blazed. Still, I dared to speak. Sir, your wife is living, that is a fact acknowledged this morning by yourself. If I lived with you, as you desire, 
I should then be your mistress. To say otherwise is sophistical, is false. Jane, I am not a gentle-tempered man. You forget that. I am not long-enduring. I am not cool and dispassionate. Out of pity to me and yourself, put your finger on my pulse, feel how it throbs, and beware. He bared his wrist and offered it to me. The blood was forsaking his cheek and lips. They were growing livid. I was distressed on all hands. To agitate him thus deeply by a resistance he so abhorred was cruel. To yield was out of the question. I did what human beings do instinctively when they are driven to utter extremity, looked for aid to one higher than man. The words, God help me, burst involuntarily from my lips. I am a fool, cried Mr. Rochester suddenly. I keep telling her I am not married and do not explain to her why. I forget she knows nothing of the character of that woman or of the circumstances attending my infernal union with her. Oh, I am certain Jane will agree with me in opinion when she knows all that I know. Just put your hand in mine, Janet, that I may have the evidence of touch as well as sight to prove you are near me, and I will in a few words show you the real state of the case. Can you listen to me? Yes, sir, for hours, if you will. I ask only minutes. Jane, did you ever hear or know that I was not the eldest son of my house, that I had once a brother older than I? I remember Mrs. Fairfax told me so once. And did you ever hear that my father was an avaricious, grasping man? I have understood something to that effect. Well, Jane, being so, it was his resolution to keep the property together. He could not bear the idea of dividing his estate and leaving me a fair portion. All, he resolved, should go to my brother, Roland. Yet as little could he endure that a son of his should be a poor man. I must be provided for by a wealthy marriage. He sought me a partner betimes. Mr. Mason, a West India planter and merchant, was his old acquaintance. He was certain his possessions were real and vast. He made inquiries. Mr. Mason, he found, had a son and daughter, and he learned from him that he could and would give the latter a fortune of thirty thousand pounds. That sufficed. When I left college, I was sent out to Jamaica to espouse a bride already courted for me. My father said nothing about her money, but he told me Miss Mason was the boast of Spanish town for her beauty, and this was no lie. I found her a fine woman in the style of Blanche Ingram, tall, dark, and majestic. Her family wished to secure me, and so did she. They showed her to me in parties splendidly dressed. I seldom saw her alone and had very little private conversation with her. She flattered me and lavishly displayed for my pleasure her charms and accomplishments. All the men in her circle seemed to admire her and envy me. I was dazzled, stimulated. My senses were excited, and being ignorant, raw and inexperienced, I thought I loved her. There is no folly so besotted that the idiotic rivalries of society, the rashness, the blindness of youth, will not hurry a man to its commission. Her relatives encouraged me. Competitors piqued me. She allured me. A marriage was achieved almost before I knew where I was. Oh, I have no respect for myself when I think of that act, 
an agony of inward contempt masters me. I never loved, I never esteemed, I did not even know her. I was not sure of the existence of one virtue in her nature. I had marked neither modesty, nor benevolence, nor candor, nor refinement in her mind or manners. And I married her, gross, groveling, mole-eyed blockhead that I was. With less sin I might have... "'but let me remember to whom I am speaking. "'My bride's mother I had never seen. "'I understood she was dead. "'The honeymoon over, I learned my mistake. "'She was only mad and shut up in a lunatic asylum. "'There was a younger brother, too, a complete dumb idiot. "'The elder one, whom you have seen, "'and whom I cannot hate, whilst I abhor all his kindred, "'because he has some grains of affection in his feeble mind.' "'shown in the continued interest he takes in his wretched sister, "'and also in a dog-like attachment he once bore me, "'will probably be in the same state one day. "'My father and my brother Roland knew all this, "'but they thought only of the thirty thousand pounds "'enjoined in the plot against me. "'These were vile discoveries, "'but except for the treachery of concealment, "'I should have made them no subject of reproach to my wife.' even when I found her nature wholly alien to me, her tastes obnoxious to me, her cast of mind common, low, narrow, and singularly incapable of being led to anything higher, expanded to anything larger. When I found that I could not pass a single evening, nor even a single hour of the day with her in comfort, that kindly conversation could not be sustained between us, because whatever topic I started immediately received from her a turn at once coarse and trite, perverse and imbecile, when I perceived that I should never have a quiet or settled household, because no servant would bear the continued outbreaks of her violent and unreasonable temper, or the vexations of her absurd, contradictory, exacting orders, even then I restrained myself. I eschewed upbraiding, I curtailed remonstrance, I tried to devour my repentance and disgust in secret. I repressed the deep antipathy I felt. Jane, I will not trouble you with abominable details. Some strong words shall express what I have to say. I lived with that woman upstairs four years, and before that time she had tried me indeed. Her character ripened and developed with frightful rapidity. Her vices sprang up fast and rank. They were so strong... Only cruelty could check them, and I would not use cruelty. What an intellect she had, and what giant propensities! How fearful were the curses those propensities entailed on me! Bertha Mason, the true daughter of an infamous mother, dragged me through all the hideous and degrading agonies which must attend a man bound to a wife at once intemperate and unchaste. My brother, in the interval, was dead, and at the end of the four years my father died too. I was rich enough now, yet poor to hideous indigence. A nature the most gross, impure, depraved I ever saw was associated with mine, and called by the law and by society a part of me. And I could not rid myself of it by any legal proceedings, for the doctors now discovered that my wife was mad, her excesses had prematurely developed the germs of insanity. Jane, you don't like my narrative. You look almost sick. Shall I defer the rest to another day? 
No, sir, finish it now. I pity you. I do earnestly pity you. Pity, Jane, from some people is a noxious and insulting sort of tribute, which one is justified in hurling back in the teeth of those who offer it. But that is a sort of pity native to callous, selfish hearts. It is a hybrid, egotistical pain at hearing of woes, crossed with ignorant contempt for those who have endured them. But that is not your pity, Jane. It is not the feeling of which your whole face is full at this moment, with which your eyes are now almost overflowing, with which your heart is heaving, with which your hand is trembling in mine. Your pity, my darling, is the suffering mother of love. Its anguish is the very natal pang of the divine passion. I accept it, Jane. Let the daughter have free advent. My arms wait to receive her. Now, sir, proceed. What did you do when you found she was mad? Jane, I approached the verge of despair. A remnant of self-respect was all that intervened between me and the gulf. In the eyes of the world, I was doubtless covered with grimy dishonor. But I resolved to be clean in my own sight, and to the last I repudiated the contamination of her crimes and wrenched myself from connection with her mental defects. Still, society associated my name in person with hers. I yet saw her and heard her daily, something of her breath mixed with the air I breathed, and besides, I remembered I had once been her husband. That recollection was then and is now inexpressibly odious to me. Moreover, I knew that while she lived, I could never be the husband of another and better wife. And though five years my senior... Her family and her father had lied to me, even in the particular of her age. She was likely to live as long as I, being as robust in frame as she was infirm in mind. Thus, at the age of twenty-six, I was hopeless. One night I had been awakened by her yells, since the medical men had pronounced her mad she had, of course, been shut up. It was a fiery West Indian night, one of the description that frequently precede the hurricanes of those climates. Being unable to sleep in bed, I got up and opened the window. The air was like sulfur steams. I could find no refreshment anywhere. Mosquitoes came buzzing in and hummed sullenly round the room. The sea, which I could hear from thence, rumbled dull like an earthquake. Black clouds were casting up over it. The moon was setting in the waves, broad and red, like a hot cannonball. She threw her last bloody glance over a world quivering with the ferment of tempest. I was physically influenced by the atmosphere and scene, and my ears were filled with the curses the maniac still shrieked out, wherein she momentarily mingled my name with such a tone of demon hate, with such language, no professed harlot ever had a fouler vocabulary than she. Though two rooms off, I heard every word, the thin partitions of the West India house opposing but slight obstruction to her wolfish cries. This life, said I at last, is hell. This is the air. Those are the sounds of the bottomless pit. I have a right to deliver myself from it if I can. The sufferings of this mortal state will leave me with the heavy flesh that now cumbers my soul. Of the fanatics burning eternity, I have no fear. There is not a future state worse than this present one. Let me break away and go home to God. I said this while I knelt down at and unlocked a trunk 
which contained a brace of loaded pistols. I mean to shoot myself. I only entertained the intention for a moment, for, not being insane, the crisis of exquisite and unalloyed despair, which had originated the wish and design of self-destruction, was passed in a second. A wind, fresh from Europe, blew over the ocean and rushed through the open casement. The storm broke. "'streamed, thundered, blazed, and the air grew pure. "'I then framed and fixed a resolution. "'While I walked under the dripping orange trees of my wet garden "'and amongst its drenched pomegranates and pineapples, "'and while the dawn of the tropics kindled round me, "'I reasoned, thus Jane, and now listen, "'for it was true wisdom that consoled me in that hour "'and showed me the right path to follow.' The sweet wind from Europe was still whispering in the refreshed leaves, and the Atlantic was thundering in glorious liberty. My heart, dried up and scorched for a long time, swelled to the tone and filled with living blood. My being longed for renewal. My soul thirsted for a pure draft. I saw hope revive and felt regeneration possible. From a flowery arch at the bottom of my garden... I gazed over the sea, bluer than the sky. The old world was beyond. Clear prospects open thus. Go, said Hope, and live again in Europe. There it is not known what a sullied name you bear, nor what a filthy burden is bound to you. You may take the maniac with you to England, confine her with due attendance and precautions at Thornfield, then travel yourself to what clime you will and form what new tie you like. That woman, who has so abused your long-suffering, so sullied your name, so outraged your honor, so blighted your youth, is not your wife, nor are you her husband. See that she is cared for as her condition demands, and you have done all that God and humanity require of you. Let her identity, her connection with yourself, be buried in oblivion. You are bound to impart them to no living being. Place her in safety and comfort, "'Shelter her degradation with secrecy, and leave her.' "'I acted precisely on this suggestion. "'My father and brother had not made my marriage known to their acquaintance, "'because, in the very first letter I wrote to apprise them of the Union, "'having already begun to experience extreme disgust of its consequences, "'and from the family character and constitution, "'seeing a hideous future opening to me, I added an urgent charge to keep it secret, and very soon the infamous conduct of the wife my father had selected for me was such as to make him blush to own her as his daughter-in-law. Far from desiring to publish the connection, he became as anxious to conceal it as myself. To England, then, I conveyed her, a fearful voyage I had with such a monster in the vessel. Glad was I when I at last got her to Thornfield, and saw her safely lodged in that third-story room, of whose secret inner cabinet she has now for ten years made a wild beast's den, a goblin cell. I had some trouble in finding an attendant for her, as it was necessary to select one on whose fidelity dependence could be placed, for her ravings would inevitably betray my secret. Besides, she had lucid intervals of days, sometimes weeks, which she filled up with abuse of me, at last, I hired Grace Poole from the Grimsby retreat. She and the surgeon Carter 
who dressed Mason's wounds that night he was stabbed and worried, are the only two I have ever admitted to my confidence. Mrs. Fairfax may indeed have suspected something, but she could have gained no precise knowledge as to facts. Grace has, on the whole, proved a good housekeeper, though, owing partly to a fault of her own, of which it appears nothing can cure her, which is incident to her harassing profession, her vigilance has been more than once lulled and baffled. The lunatic is both cunning and malignant. She has never failed to take advantage of her guardian's temporary lapses. Once to secrete the knife with which she stabbed her brother, and twice to possess herself of the key of her cell and issue therefrom in the night-time. On the first of these occasions she perpetrated the attempt to burn me in my bed. On the second she paid that ghastly visit to you. I thank Providence, who watched over you, that she then spent her fury on your wedding apparel, which perhaps brought back vague reminiscences of her own bridal days. But on what might have happened I cannot endure to reflect. When I think of the thing which flew at my throat this morning— "'hanging its black and scarlet visage "'over the nest of my dove, my blood curdles. "'And what, sir,' I asked, while he paused, "'did you do when you had her settled here? "'Where did you go?' "'What did I do, Jane? "'I transformed myself into a will-o'-the-wisp. "'Where did I go? "'I pursued wanderings as wild as those of the March spirit. "'I sought the continent,' and went devious through all its lands. My fixed desire was to seek and find a good and intelligent woman whom I could love, a contrast to the fury I left at Thornfield. But you could not marry, sir. I had determined and was convinced that I could and ought. It was not my original intention to deceive, as I have deceived you. I meant to tell my tale plainly and make my proposals openly, and it appeared to me so absolutely rational that I should be considered free to love and be loved, I never doubted some woman might be found willing and able to understand my case and accept me, in spite of the curse with which I was burdened. Well, sir, when you are inquisitive, Jane, you always make me smile. You open your eyes like an eager bird and make every now and then a restless movement, as if answers in speech did not flow fast enough for you, and you wanted to read the tablet of one's heart. But before I go on, tell me what you mean by your well, sir. It is a small phrase, very frequent with you, and which many a time has drawn me on and on through interminable talk. I don't very well know why. I mean what next? How did you proceed? What came of such an event? Precisely. "'And what do you wish to know now? "'Whether you found anyone you liked, "'whether you asked her to marry you, and what she said. "'I can tell you whether I found anyone I liked, "'and whether I asked her to marry me, "'but what she said is yet to be recorded in the Book of Fate. "'For ten long years I roved about, "'living first in one capital, then another, "'sometimes in St. Petersburg, "'oftener in Paris, "'occasionally in Rome, Naples, and Florence.' Provided with plenty of money and the passport of an old name, I could choose my own society. No circles were closed against me. I sought my ideal of a woman amongst English ladies, French countesses, Italian signoras. I could not find her. 
Sometimes, for a fleeting moment, I thought I caught a glance, heard a tone, beheld a form, which announced the realization of my dream. But I was presently undeserved. You are not to suppose that I desired perfection, either of mind or person. I longed only for what suited me. Amongst them all I found not one whom, had I been ever so free, I, warned as I was of the risks, the horrors, the loathings of incongruous unions, would have asked to marry me. Disappointment made me reckless. I tried dissipation, never debauchery. That I hated and hate. Any enjoyment that bordered on riot seemed to approach me to her and her vices, and I eschewed it. Yet I could not live alone, so I tried the companionship of mistresses. The first I chose was Celine Varennes, another of those steps which make a man spurn himself when he recalls them. You already know what she was and how my liaison with her terminated. She had two successors, an Italian, Jacinta, and a German, Clara, both considered singularly handsome. What was their beauty to me in a few weeks? Jacinta was unprincipled and violent. I tired of her in three months. Clara was honest and quiet, but heavy, mindless, and unimpressible, not one whit to my taste. I was glad to give her a sufficient sum to set her up in a good line of business, and so get decently rid of her. But Jane... I see by your face you're not forming a very favorable opinion of me just now. You think me an unfeeling, loose-principled rake, don't you? I don't like you so well as I have done sometimes, indeed, sir. Did it not seem to you in the least wrong to live in that way, first with one mistress and then another? You talk of it as a mere matter of course. It was with me, and I did not like it. It was a groveling fashion of existence— I should never like to return to it. I now hate the recollection of the time I passed with Celine, Jacinta, and Clara. I felt the truth of these words, and I drew from them the certain inference that if I were so far to forget myself and all the teaching that had ever been instilled into me, as, under any pretext, with any justification, through any temptation, to become the successor of these poor girls, he would one day regard me with the same feeling which now in his mind desecrated their memory. I did not give utterance to this conviction. There was enough to feel it. I impressed it on my heart that it might remain there to serve me as aid in the time of trial. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.